You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our final class in this course on the sacraments is going to examine matrimony. And when we look at the Old Testament, where we have to begin in understanding anything in the Christian life, really, we see that God generally reveals himself gradually to Israel and reveals his plan gradually. We call that gradual revelation divine pedagogy. God is a great teacher. As a teacher, he begins with people understanding where they are at and gradually brings them to where he wants them to be. And that's the way it is with ancient Israel. When he finds Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the family of Abraham with whom he begins salvation history, they're a pagan family from a pagan culture. And in that culture, wife is the property of husband. There's not an ideal of equality. We have a civil contract and we have polygamy where a man can have as much property as he wants, he can have as many wives as he can afford. Divorce is allowed in a society like this. A man can dismiss a wife that he is unpleased with. This is the situation of ancient Israel, and God does not immediately reveal his entire plan for marriage. So we find polygamy in the age of the patriarchs, and we find polygamy with the kings of Israel. Okay, But gradually we see God reveals his plan. With the prophets, he begins to show that marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant between man and woman, and that means that there has to be some sort of dignity of woman involved here. We see a gradual disappearance of polygamy, and the ideal appears in places like Malachi 2. We have a man and a wife, one with one wife, and an ideal that there should be a permanence between them, that God is not really pleased with divorce, for example, the divorce that's allowed by Moses in Deuteronomy 24.1. We find in Genesis God's original intent. You know, it's important to understand that the book of Genesis itself is not written until long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The book of Genesis in its final form is written around in the 5th century BC. And there we see a much more developed idea of marriage as revealed by God. We see in Genesis 2 that wonderful story where man and woman are created for each other. Adam is lonely. He's unfulfilled until Eve is created. And she is bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. They fit perfectly together. And this is why man clings to woman, leaves his family, and clings to his wife. And the two shall be called one. In Genesis 3, when this pair conspire against God, their relationship of unity and of equality is disrupted. And we see that part of the consequences of sin is the domination of wife by husband. That's the way Genesis 3.16 presents it. Now, there's a difference between domination and proper headship. Genesis 2 shows Adam as being head of his wife, of having a certain authority in that he names her. But domination comes in through sin, not through God's original plan. We'll talk about headship in a few minutes. But right now, I just want to point out that there is a transition in the Old Testament era. The beginning, woman is property and has no rights. And as time goes on, marriage is seen as a covenant between two parties who have great dignity. And an indissoluble bond is really revealed to be God's original intent. So when Jesus comes and speaks of marriage as indissoluble, he is merely insisting on God's original intent of marriage. He is not coming out of the blue, but is really continuing a development that we see in God's revelation in the Old Testament. And Jesus speaks very strongly of marriage as being indissoluble. He talks about divorce and remarriage being wrong and admits of no exception in Mark 10 and in Luke 16, verse 18. But we do see some exceptions made in Matthew. In Matthew 5, 32, in Matthew 19, 3 through 12, that a husband who divorces his wife and causes her to be married by another is guilty of forcing her to commit adultery, except in the occasion of pornea. Pornea is a word in the Old Testament, it's a Greek word actually, but it's used in the Jewish context in Old Testament and the equivalent in Hebrew and in the New Testament in Greek. It's used to talk about a number of different things. It could be fornication premarital sex, but that's not what it means here. It means most probably not adultery, because there's another word for adultery. It means here probably, as you can see in the footnotes to the Revised New American Bible, 
under Matthew 5.31, it means probably a marriage within a forbidden degree of kinship. You see, the Jews were very strict about who could marry whom. You could not marry certain kinds of cousins or people that are family members. Obviously, you couldn't marry sisters and brothers, but the Gentiles were pretty loose about marrying cousins, where the Jews were very strict. Also, there are certain legal relationships where you cannot marry someone. Somebody who's married into your family, even, you can't marry, even if they're not a blood relative. So many times in the early church, it would seem, actually before the church, in situations where Gentiles become Jews, like the centurion in the gospel story who built the synagogue at Capernaum and who had a servant who needed healing. There were many, many Gentiles who became Jews in the first century. And sometimes they were in marriages that weren't accepted by Jews. Rabbis sometimes allowed them to stay in those marriages. But here, what probably we're talking about is people who become Christian, come into the Christian community, who have a marriage that's really unlawful in Jewish eyes. So when Jesus is talking about here the exception of a situation of pornea. He's talking about marriages that can be dissolved and people can remarry because they weren't marriages to begin with. They were invalid marriages or marriages that were unacceptable as marriages. And that's an important point. That is the foundation for something we're going to discuss later, namely the Catholic practice of declaring a certain marriage null and void, commonly known as annulment. Okay? It really goes back to the understanding of Matthew's gospel here and Jesus' exception to the absolute prohibition for divorce and remarriage. But let's talk about Paul. Paul also rejects divorce following the Lord Jesus' master. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16, marriage is something that is sacred. But he also admits of an exception. And the exception that he admits of is in a situation where a pagan couple, they have a marital relationship that's legal, and one of the spouses becomes Christian. And the other spouse not only does not want to become Christian, but does not want to live in peace with their newly baptized spouse and rejects that spouse. In such an occasion, Paul says, the Christian spouse is free to remarry, enter into a Christian union. It's fascinating what we see in Jesus and then in Paul. There is a general and very strong prohibition of divorce and remarriage. But there are pastoral circumstances that are special that are recognized both in Matthew's Gospel and in St. Paul, where someone in a legal marriage can remarry in a Christian setting with the blessing of God and the church. And that's the important thing to keep in mind when it comes to the issue of divorce and remarriage. Let's go and look at an overview of the history of marriage in the Catholic Church. First of all, I want to point out that very early on after the New Testament, there are a number of writings. One group of writings is the letters of Ignatius of Antioch, written around the year 115. And he writes to a number of different churches in Asia Minor. Ignatius is a bishop of Antioch, so he's very close to the apostolic tradition. He's only one bishop away from the apostles in Antioch, where Peter, where Barnabas and Paul all led and taught. So he tells us a fascinating little piece of information. And that is that Christians ought to enter into marriage only with the consent of the bishop. The consent of the father of the Christian family is needed for a marriage to be in the Lord and not a marriage that is motivated by lust. That is in his letter to Polycarp, chapter 5. It's important for us to realize now we live in an individualistic age. And it's the way we think in America today is that marriage is purely an affair between two independent people. It's their decision. No one else should be involved. But until recently, most marriages, many times from um, traditional societies in Europe, and even today, it still happens in traditional societies from South Asia, for example, or Latin America, where parents of two people arrange a marriage. And, you know, for us now, it's kind of hard to accept, but one of the things that is reflected by these arranged marriages is a very real and true fact for all time, and that is, the marriage of two people affects a lot more than those two people. It affects their offspring, of course, but it affects their families. There's really a coming together of two families here. Marriage is a social reality that goes beyond two individuals and their romantic love for each other. And that's something that's recognized in the church. The church is a family. And in the early church, the marriage of Christians was seen to impact the whole family, and therefore the father of the family needed to exercise guidance and he didn't arrange marriages. We have no evidence of that. But what we do have is that the marriage had to be encouraged and blessed and approved by the bishop. That's something that in a certain way still survives today in what we call canonical 
form. A marriage of Catholics needs to take place according to canonical form, which means in some way the bishop or his representative needs to approve of this union. We now find that in the Catholic Church, it is customary for spouses to be wed in a ceremony that takes place during the Eucharist. And we find back in the second century that oftentimes the Eucharist was the sealing moment following a marriage. Tertullian, a great Christian writer from the second and early third century, talked about a marriage being sealed by the oblation, referring here to the Eucharist. How about divorce and remarriage, and how about the marriage of widows? The second marriage, or the third marriage, after the death of a first spouse or a second spouse. What do we see in the Christian scriptures and in the early centuries regarding that? Well, Paul. Paul allowed it by way of concession, but it wasn't the ideal. The ideal was for a spouse to remain unmarried, you know, a widow to remain as a widow, unmarried. But he says it's better to marry than to burn. So if a widow can't handle being alone, then the widow should enter into lawful marriage. It's second best as far as he's concerned. Some actually saw it as sin. There were a number of different rigorous sectarian groups of Christians who said that second marriage was absolutely unacceptable. It was sinful. And there's actually a mainstream Christian writing called the letter to Anathagoras. Uh, actually, it's an apology. It's called Anathagoras's plea. It is written to defend Christianity against the pagans. And it's written uh, by a Greek writer in the end of the second century. And he sees second marriage as a sin. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, we see second marriage, really, as something that would invalidate a person's candidacy to be bishop. It says, a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified. Here, we're not talking about polygamy or talking about divorce and remarriage. Most probably, we're talking here about a man who has been widowed and marries again. So here we see that there's an ideal that a person be faithful to a spouse even after death. Okay? So nowadays, in the Catholic Church of the West, in any way at all, we do not frown upon a second marriage after a person is widowed. But the reason I bring this out is just simply to understand in the early church how strongly the church believed in the sacredness of marriage and the indissolubility of marriage. After death, we see Jesus talks about the fact that in heaven, there's no longer marriage. So a man who dies and his wife marries another, when that is proposed to Jesus by the Sadducees to trick him because they didn't believe in heaven, but they want to know in heaven, if a woman had seven different husbands, you know, in heaven, whose wife would this woman be? And Jesus tries to point out that in heaven, we're not going to need to beget children in heaven. We're not going to need to carry out an earthly relationship of marriage in heaven. But nonetheless, the bond between husband and wife is a bond that spiritually, at least, endures, at least in the mind of the early Christians. And to this day, in the Eastern churches, second marriage is seen as a second best. And it's loud and blessed, but we do not have the same kind of ceremony. Okay? So the point I'm making here is in the church, there's tremendous importance placed on the indissolubility of marriage. What is it that makes the marriage bond? That's something that was not absolutely clear. It really evolved in the church's understanding. And I'll point out that in the Roman world, in the early Roman world, which was the context for the early church's growth, you find in Roman law, what makes marriage is not a legal ceremony. It's rather the consent of the two parties, the man and the woman. When those two people consent to live together and accept each other as husband and wife, then a marriage is made. Now, for the Germanic barbarian tribes that swept into Europe and led to the demise of the Roman Empire, there was a whole different idea. For them, marriage was created by the actual act of marriage. When a man slept with a woman, marriage was created. That's what created the marital bond. The medieval church had both of these traditions, secular traditions that fed into it, and it caused the church to reflect. And the church came to realize that marriage really, in a certain way, involved both, obviously. It involved the will of two people. But marriage is not just a friendship. It's not just a spiritual relationship. But it is a physical relationship that leads to a physical reality, oftentimes, and hopefully children. So Pope Alexander III in the 12th century came to realize and teach that consent makes the marital bond, but consummation really makes that bond indissoluble. That is a, an important insight that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. It has some implications for the way in which 
we understand annulment and the ability of a marriage to be dissolved. But let's take a look for a minute at when marriage was recognized as a sacrament. It was certainly understood all along as an important ceremony and reality in the church, but it wasn't until 1439 in the decree for the Armenians that the Council of Florence definitively in an official way taught that marriage was clearly one of the seven sacraments. And that was also ratified by the Council of Trent. The Protestant reformers, as I mentioned in earlier lectures, really disagreed with Catholic doctrine on the sacraments to a very large degree. And for most of the reformers, there were not seven sacraments instituted by Christ, but there were only two, and in some cases, three. It's very clear that Jesus explicitly institutes the Eucharist when he says, do this in memory of me at the Last Supper. It's very clear at the end of Matthew's Gospel that Jesus institutes baptism when he says, go and preach the Gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Protestant reformers said that they could not find evidence that Jesus instituted the sacrament of marriage. They believed that marriage was a natural good that God created from the beginning, and we see that in Genesis, and that it didn't need to be sacramentalized. It was a good thing already. That there was not any grace really necessarily involved in the marital bond. The Council of Trent disagrees here and firmly reasserts that marriage is a sacrament. And it points really to a number of things Jesus did, not explicitly in the four canonical gospels, but the fact that he himself is called bridegroom, the fact that Israel in the Old Testament even is seen as God's bride in the Song of Songs and in Hosea, and most explicitly in Ephesians 5, that marriage is called by Paul a great sacrament or a great sign of the relationship between Christ and the church. All these things cause the church to reassert and reaffirm that marriage is indeed a sacrament. It is a natural good. It is good even between pagans who have no knowledge of Christ. But it is raised to the order of sacrament, to a sign of a divine thing, to an instrument of divine grace by Christ. Okay? So that is really kind of an overview of the dogma. And in terms of the understanding of marriage, we have to see that the 20th century brought some advancement in the church's teaching, development of the church's doctrine. 20th century, there was a philosophy, a philosophical current known as personalism that arose, particularly in the 30s. And that personalism really emphasized the importance of human relationship, relationship between people and God, relationship between human beings. And so the emphasis on marriage became more and more an emphasis on the dignity of the intimate relationship, the partnership between spouses. Sometimes in language one could read in theologians and particularly in canon law, marriage sounded almost too much like a contract, uh, a contract that had to do with property and had to do with sexual rights and had to do with children, but didn't have a whole lot to do with friendship and intimacy. And that really changes a lot in the church's language and in its teaching, beginning in the 30s. In 1930, Pope Pius XI, one of the great popes of the last several hundred years, I think, he wrote an encyclical called Casti Conubi, which means really chaste marriage, chaste spouses. And he talks about how much God intends marriage to be a partnership that leads the spouses to deep friendship, but especially to holiness. We see the same emphasis in the Second Vatican Council, in Gaudium et Spes, the constitution, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. Also in Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, chapter 11. We see it also in canon law, which flows really the new code of canon law from the teaching of the Second Vatican Council. And lastly, we see it in the catechism of the Catholic Church. The language that is used is covenant language, which is language of relationship rather than the business language of a contract. We see marriage depicted in Gaudium et Spes, number 48, as an intimate community of life and love. So that's kind of an overview of 20 centuries, actually more, of about uh, 40 centuries, from Abraham to the present, of marriage and the way it's understood by God's people. From the state of the question right now, let's examine theologically marriage a little bit and the effects of marriage, the purpose of marriage. First of all, the entire Christian life is really nuptial in its quality. The whole Christian life is about love, about a covenant of love between God and his people. We see that Jesus talks about heaven in terms of a marriage banquet, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Therefore, the entire Christian life bears 
the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. That's a line from the Catechism, number 1617. It's funny that baptism has a nuptial quality to it. Baptism is seen as the nuptial bath. The people in the early church who wore white garments and came out of the baptismal font with candles processing into church, it was seen as a wedding procession by St. Cyril of Jerusalem. The Eucharist is seen as a wedding feast, and that was the banquet that the newly baptized were able to attend that night after their baptism. So, to love is the fundamental and innate vocation of every human being, since every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. So, in a certain way, all of the sacraments and all of Christian life bears that certain spousal or nuptial quality. So, although the Eucharist is the sacrament of sacraments, the pinnacle of the Christian life, in a certain way, marriage colors all of Christian life. So, marriage has a great dignity in Catholic tradition, and I think that's very important. For many centuries, the emphasis to the means of holiness and shortcut to holiness was on religious life. And I think that always in the Christian tradition, we have an implicit teaching of how marriage aids one in growing in holiness. And in this century, that's become more and more explicit. Let me read you a passage from the Catechism. After the fall, marriage helps to overcome self-absorption, egoism, pursuit of one's own pleasure, and to open oneself to the other, to mutual aid, and to self-giving. I'm looking forward in this century to someone writing a book about marriage and bringing out the tremendous opportunities for self-denial in marriage. I know personally, having lived singly for many years, I made many sacrifices. I spent lots of times in prayer and could fast and do all sorts of things. But there were sacrifices that were imposed upon me when I got married and particularly when God blessed us with children. Monks oftentimes get up in the middle of the night for vigils. They do that deliberately. I found myself getting up in the middle of the night without it being my own volition. And so there's many opportunities for self-denial and self-giving that come through marriage. And the church recognizes these as great aids to holiness. And in the sacrament of marriage, God pours out grace to help people take advantage of these opportunities and make them occasions to grow. The church equally esteems virginity for the sake of the kingdom. We see for the last 2,000 years, people choose with the encouragement of the church to live single for Christ in religious life and in the West, in priesthood. But at the same time, the church esteems greatly the married state. They're both highly esteemed, and esteem for one cannot fully ever exist without esteem and recognition of the value of the other. They meant not to compete with each other, but to lead to respect for the other vocation. Now, who is the minister of marriage? In the Eastern Catholic theology, in Orthodox theology, the spouses receive the sacrament through the ministry of the priest. The priest is the minister of the sacrament. But in the West, the tradition has been different. And we understand that in the Catholic tradition of the Latin rite, that it's not the priest or deacon who administers the sacrament, it's really the spouses who are the ministers of the sacrament. Their consent to each other calls down the power of the Holy Spirit implicitly and that marital bond is sealed through consent and the outpouring of the Spirit. So, in the Catholic Church of the West, it need not be a priest who officiates at the ceremony. Deacons can officiate at the ceremony, and in cases where deacons can't be present, the bishop can authorize a layperson to preside at a Catholic marriage. You see that in Canon Law number 1108, and also in number 1112. St. Augustine had an awesome impact on the way in which Western Christianity thought of almost everything, beginning in his lifetime, he died in the year 430, all the way to the present. So, St. Augustine, when he looked at marriage, he saw three great goods that God intended to come out of marriage. And the three goods of marriage became the traditional way that almost everybody wrote about marriage in the Western church. So I'm gonna follow those three uh, goods of marriage and just use them as a framework to comment on marriage. First of all, the begetting and education of children is the first good of marriage. It has to be underlined that it's not just the begetting, but the education of children that is a good of marriage. The Lord uses spouses as ministers in the propagation of life, but also the Lord uses spouses as ministers in the education of children, not just the education of children, in the secular things that children need to learn to make a go of it in this world, 
You know, spouses obviously teach children language. We learn our native tongue in large part from our parents. We learn how to dress ourselves, clothe ourselves, feed ourselves. We learn a whole lot about the normal basics of human life. But the church sees the family as the seedbed of Christian service and of Christian worship. And it's the spouses who have the primary and original responsibility to teach kids about worship and about apostolic service, care of the needy, the obligation to serve Christ. All those things are first taught and should be first taught in the home. The family is the domestic church. It's the smallest unit of the church. That phrase, the domestic church, goes back to the early church fathers. And it's used again and underlined very prominently in the Second Vatican Council's teaching. Lumen Gentium, chapter 8. Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1655. So, the Second Vatican Council teaches strongly in a number of documents, and the Catechism reiterates it, that the primary educators of children are parents. Parents can be assisted in educating kids to Christian worship and Christian lifestyle and Christian apostolate. They can be assisted by professional religious educators, volunteer religious educators in the parish, nuns, priests, but their role can never be replaced. It can never be supplanted by anyone else. Parents need to assume that responsibility. They need to be equipped for that responsibility. Catholic parenthood is in fact a canonical office and it's likened to the pastoral responsibility of a priest by Thomas Aquinas and by John Paul II, citing Thomas Aquinas in Familiaris Consortio, number 38. That same document, numbers 37 to 39, make clear that parenthood is a true ministry of the church. And I would just point out that if this is true, then religious education in the Catholic Church, pastorally in America, has to make a transition. We have to see that we must focus much more attention on equipping adults to understand the faith and to teach the faith in their own families, rather than continuing simply to focus on kids. Right now, even though the Second Vatican Council taught this primary obligation of parents to educate children, it taught it back in the 60s, we still see that in many, many parishes, adult education is virtually nil. And still we have the emphasis on training kids, getting them ready for the sacraments. Now, getting kids ready for the sacraments is great, but I must just point out that it is the parents' responsibility to prepare kids for the sacraments. We see many occasions where we have homeschoolers who want to do the education of their kids, the preparation of their kids for the sacraments. This is entirely legitimate. And no parish really has the right, canonically, ever to insist that a child go through uh, parish-sponsored religious education programs, can never refuse children access to the sacraments because their parents want to be the ones to prepare them. The parents' preparation of children for the sacraments is entirely authorized and encouraged by the church documents. Let's talk about the second good of marriage, which is partnership, the fidelity of spouses to each other, the companionship there, and especially the religious companionship, the spiritual friendship of marriage that's intended to lead spouses to the heights of holiness. Okay? Pius XI, back in 1930, talked about marriage as a persevering endeavor to bring each other to the state of perfection, a complete and intimate life partnership. Beautiful text from Casti Canubi. But I also want to read something that John Paul II says in Familiaris Consortio. I want you to understand that in marriage, we have, as in all sacraments, an outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. We have a grace that's conveyed in the sacrament of marriage. Now, we live in a society where divorce is ever more prevalent and ever more common. We find many marriages failing. And we have to think, you know, we're sinful human beings. What would we expect? Surrounded by temptation in a society where commitment is not really valued very highly, where sexual temptation is everywhere, you can see how easy it would be for spouses, weak as they are, human beings as they are, to fail in their commitment to one another. In the sacrament of marriage, grace is poured out to make fidelity possible, to give people resources that go beyond their own human strength to be faithful to each other, to be chaste, to be loyal. Let me read this little text from John Paul II. The spirit which the Lord pours forth in marriage, in the sacrament, gives a new heart and renders man and woman capable of loving one another as Christ has loved us. Conjugal love reaches that fullness 
to which it's interiorly ordained, conjugal charity, which is the proper and specific way in which the spouses participate in and are called to live the very charity of Christ who gave himself on the cross. God's way of loving, which we call charity, is not possible for people without grace. So it's no wonder that those who do not know Christ have a real hard time laying their lives down for each other. The self-giving love of Christ, which is most perfectly represented by the cross, is something that only Christ can make us capable of. And that's something that marriage is about. The sacrament of marriage is about the communication of that self-giving divine love to each spouse so that they can lay their lives down for each other. Okay, the third great good of marriage is something that I think most of us don't ever think about. I think it's very clear that marriage has something to do with children, although nowadays more and more people seem to think that marriage is just about partnership, just about companionship. But, you know, companionship, okay, everyone knows that one. Most people have some idea that children are a good of marriage. But the third good is clearly supernatural. And apart from understanding Christ and his plan, no one would ever think about it. And that is this, marriage is intended by Christ to be a prophetic word, to be a prophetic example of his fidelity to the church and the church's fidelity to him. It's a bond. This bond of marriage between Christian spouses is meant to be a prophetic pointer toward the bond between Christ and his church. It's meant to be an example of it. It's meant to be a visible reminder of it. That's the third good of marriage, the third good of Christian marriage. It's one of the things that makes Christian marriage different from just the natural relationship of marriage. So the bond of marriage that is created between two baptized people who say yes to each other, that Christian sacramental marriage is a font of grace. It is meant to be a symbol of the covenant, but it's meant also to be a source of ongoing grace, not only for the spouses to help each other, love each other, grow in holiness, not only for the kids, but for everyone. It's meant to lead everyone to remember and see and be inspired by and touched by Christ's love for his church and the church's loyalty to Christ. The church has always claimed authority over marriage from the very beginning. And you see that in Ignatius's letters. You see it also taught very authoritatively by one of the great popes of the 19th century, Leo XIII. And for those of you who have access to the book, The Christian Faith, the Compendium of Church Documents, you can read that in number 1821. What I'd like to talk about for a moment right now is, number one, the fruits of marriage. And number two, I want to talk about the whole issue of the indissolubility of marriage and talk about the sacramental bond, what makes it and what makes the natural bond of marriage. First of all, what is the effect of the sacrament of marriage? What is the goal of the sacrament of marriage? We've hinted at it already. But the main thing is that a sacramental marriage takes a natural bond, a natural reality, and supernaturalizes it. It transforms it and elevates it by grace. So that natural bond of marriage, which is for the good of children, for the good of spouses, now becomes something much more. It becomes a symbol, a permanent symbol, of the union between Christ and his church. Now why is it so important that marriage be indissoluble? Because if marriage breaks up, it's a countersign to what it's supposed to proclaim, namely the indissoluble bond between Christ and the church. The indissolubility is a prophetic word. Okay, so it's a duty, and Christ gives us grace so that we can live out that duty, live out that sign. The Lord wants the indissoluble bond of love and affection between spouses to be continuously visible, and it should be made so as much as possible. This indissolubility creates stability for children and stability for society. It has benefits for everyone on many different levels. The sacramental grace that Christ gives in every sacrament always leads people to greater holiness. Every sacrament leads to an increase of sanctifying grace, which means faith, hope, and charity. We need to grow ever in this life, deepening our faith, our hope of heaven, our charity, our sharing in the self-giving love of Christ. But each sacrament meets people in a different place in their life, and therefore we talk about sacramental grace, grace that's tailored really and colored by this particular sacrament. And in marriage, obviously, people are embarking upon a challenging road. So there needs to be an increase of grace and a modification of habits 
and of virtues in people if they're going to be fit for this state of life. And that's part of what marriage is about. It's imparting sacramental grace, which equips people to carry out the married state. There are wounds of sin in our lives that would block us and keep us from being faithful to each other, carrying out the responsibility for children, learning how to forgive and accept each other in our differences, all these kinds of things. There are areas of sin in our life that would impede this. And in marriage, grace is given to help heal the wounds of sin and help strengthen the kind of virtues necessary to carry out a successful marriage, okay? The grace of the sacrament becomes a foundation and a title for all the actual graces that one's going to need for a lifetime to meet the challenges, the financial challenges, the personal challenges, all the challenges that come along the way in marriage. And this is something that Catholics need to understand. When you enter into marriage, there's a certain kind of claim that one has in entering into the sacrament on the graces needed for the day-to-day living out of the married state. There are many times when my wife and I have hit challenges and problems where we sit down and pray and just say, Lord, we thank you for calling us into the married state. We thank you for the grace of the sacrament. We call on that grace right now to help us in this situation. We call on that grace. We ask you, Lord, to give us what we need right at this moment to deal with a financial challenge, to deal with difficult relationship with other relatives, the various kinds of things that come up in married life. One of the things that the sacramental grace of marriage does is create a setting for children to develop to their full capacity for loving and living on the natural level, on the supernatural level. The family is a seminarium, a seminary. Seminary means a seed bed, a greenhouse. That's what the word comes from. You think about young, tender plants. Young, tender plants need special loving care. They can't endure the harsh weather conditions you often find outside. So they're in a greenhouse. They can get light. They can get air. But they're protected against high winds. They're protected against low temperatures, maybe even in some cases uh, attacked by insects and other kind of things. So that's what a family is meant to be. It's meant to set up a setting where young, tender individuals can thrive and grow and be in a position to go out and make it in the world on a natural level and on a supernatural level. And the sacramental grace of marriage is given to spouses so they can help create that environment, that environment that nurtures and nourishes and helps new Christians to grow. Let's talk now about the indissoluble bond of marriage. First of all, we have to understand what makes the natural bond of marriage in the mindset of Catholics. Well, we've talked about it a little bit already. For a Catholic, in a Catholic understanding of what marriage is about, The natural bond of marriage is something that happens out there all the time, whether people are Christian or not, religious or not. The natural bond of marriage is created when two people who are free to marry, they're not married before, they're not being pushed by relatives or anyone else, but freely two people come together and consent to accept each other as their lifelong spouse. They are people who understand what marriage is. They understand that it's permanent. They understand that it's oriented to children, okay? And they freely agree to enter into this permanent union that is open to children, okay? That's what marriage is. And when people who are free to do that and understand what marriage is enter into marriage, then that is a permanent natural bond. It's a naturally good thing. It can't be broken easily. Some Catholics seem to think that if a marriage is not Catholic, if it's not carried out in church, then it can be dissolved and people can get divorced and remarried. No, not so. The natural bond of marriage is something that the Catholic Church really respects and sees as generally inviolable. Okay, now how about sacramental marriage? What makes a sacramental marriage? Well, what makes a sacramental marriage is when two baptized people enter into marriage. The natural bond of marriage is a sacramental bond when the two people who enter into it are baptized. Two baptized people cannot enter into any other marriage than a sacramental marriage. Sacramental marriage is natural marriage, which is good itself and generally indissoluble, that is elevated by grace, by baptism, to a higher degree. It means something more now. And what it means, it's oriented towards heaven towards bringing the spouses to heaven and bringing the children to heaven and bringing everyone who sees this marriage to glorify God, uh, leading them to heaven. Okay, that's really what happens with the supernatural bond. It's simply the natural bond that's elevated and transformed because it's entered into by baptized people. Now, the Catholic Church understands that it's the consent of the spouses, of two baptized spouses, which calls down the blessing and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
So the consent of two baptized people calls forth the Spirit to come, and that marriage now is a supernatural reality. It's entered into and it's indissoluble. But the Catholic Church has always seen there are certain degrees of indissolubility. In a natural marriage, natural marriage is generally indissoluble, but it can be dissolved because we see St. Paul says that it can be dissolved in a very particular case. We call this case the Pauline privilege, where a natural marriage exists to pagan people. One becomes baptized, becomes converted. The other rejects that converted spouse. And St. Paul says the church can allow that person to marry again. In other words, the church in that circumstance has the right and the authority to dissolve a natural marriage. That's the only place that's mentioned in Scripture, the only circumstance that's mentioned in Scripture. So a natural bond is generally indissoluble except in that one case, that one circumstance. The church has the authority to dissolve a marriage that is natural and real. Now there is also a sacramental marriage that can be dissolved by the church. Marriage, when people enter into a sacramental marriage, two baptized people say, yes, I do, but never consummate that marriage. That marriage can be, in certain circumstances, dissolved by the church. And in the Middle Ages, it was dissolved generally because one of the spouses desired to enter into religious life and sought to become a nun or a monk or a priest. And so the church saw that in that kind of circumstance, the church had the authority to dissolve the marriage. But once a sacramental marriage is consummated, once the spouses physically actualize their marital bond, the church has no authority whatsoever to dissolve that union. That is the way the church understands the degrees of indissolubility. A natural bond is generally indissoluble except in one rare circumstance. A sacramental unconsummated marriage can be dissolved, but a sacramental consummated marriage can never be dissolved by the church for any reason. And the church sees that it is limited. What God has joined together, let no man divide. And that's seen to be fully true in sacramental consummated marriage. So the church does not divorce people. It cannot dissolve a marriage. But what a church can do is it can recognize that a certain apparent marriage really never was fully affected. It is not a marriage, although it appears to be one. It is not a marriage in God's eyes. And that is what commonly people call an annulment. The church does not annul a marriage. It simply declares that from the beginning it was null and void. And therefore, these two people have a right to be married in the church because they are, in fact, single. That's really what, you know, they may be legally married, but spiritually, sacramentally, in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of God, they are really single people who have a right to marry. That's what we call annulment is really about. And it goes back to those acceptive clauses in Matthew's gospel, okay? Remember, those clauses don't mean that people can go out and divorce and remarry if their spouse commits adultery. What it means is marriages that have been recognized by law but never should have taken place, those marriages are not real marriages. So those spouses can legally divorce and remarry within the church. That's what that means according to the exegetes today who understand the circumstances of the time and read that in its context, original context. So that's the way the Catholic Church has always understood the issue of legal divorce and remarriage of Christians. It can only take place when that original marriage that they were in is not, in fact, a marriage. We're getting a little bit into canon law. I don't know if you're going to be taking a canon law class that will cover this. I want you to understand this. What would be the reasons that a church would declare a marriage to be null and void? Okay, there are a number of different reasons, and I'll tell you a little bit about the procedure. First of all, every marriage that is apparent, every legal marriage, is innocent till proven guilty. In other words, the presumption is that that is a real marriage until proven otherwise. And those people have to be treated as married people until proven otherwise. So what the church does is very carefully examine the case in a court, typically. The whole process can take quite a while, except in one case. One case is very quick to, to recognize. When, if you remember what I said earlier, since the beginning, the consent of the bishop is necessary for Catholics. Bishop has pastoral authority over those who are Catholic, and so the bishop has to consent to a marriage for it to be lawful. Okay? When people do not follow canonical form, when they marry without the consent of the bishop, 
without following his directives on how the marriage ought to take place, then from the very beginning the marriage is null and void. It's very easy to find out. Now let me give you an example. One of the requirements of canonical form in the Catholic Church is that there be two witnesses. When there are not two witnesses, they are not there to sign that they witness the consent of the spouses. That immediately invalidates the marriage. When a minister performs the marriage without being authorized by the bishop, whether he be a deacon, a priest, or a layperson, that invalidates canonical form. So very quickly, that marriage is decreed null and void. But let's say someone goes through a Catholic ceremony, or let's say two Protestant Christians who are not obliged by canonical form, they're baptized, they have a marriage. Let's say it's an apparently Christian marriage, or let's say that it's a natural marriage between two pagans. And that's something that is indissoluble. The church can't just dismiss that and allow one of those spouses to marry a Catholic. Let's say any of those occasions, you know, the church has to go and investigate those situations and find out whether or not, indeed, these people have a right to marry, whether or not their original marriage was null and void. There's a court that examines the case, okay, and that court will look into these things. Could it be that one of the spouses who entered into a marriage was not free in entering into the marriage? We've all heard about shotgun weddings, where a, a young man will impregnate a woman and the father will force the guy to marry the gal, okay? Now, that's real clear. Well, you know, when someone is pointing a gun in someone's back, it's not free decision. But there are other things that may be less apparent that could cause someone to seek marriage without real freedom. The pressure of shame in pregnancy could force a pregnant woman to marry a man, the father of her child, when she really wasn't freely given herself to him when she was only really trying to provide legitimacy for the child or financial support for the child, okay? That oftentimes invalidates a marriage, that lack of freedom. Also, a lot of times there's a lack of informed consent. In our society today, we look at the media, and we can see in popular culture, there's lots of people who do not understand that marriage means being open to children. So when someone enters into a marriage, and later refuses to have children and never believed when they got married that marriage meant children. That invalidates marriage because what they're consenting to is not true marriage. Or another case, someone enters into a marriage without understanding that marriage is permanent. They never intended permanence. They intended to enter into a relationship legally with a person and if it didn't work out, they divorce and remarry. Well, they weren't entering into marriage as far as the Catholic Church is concerned. Sometimes people wish each other well and you know, want to very much enter into marriage, but there's a lack of due discretion. There's a lack of maturity, particularly in young people, in teens, people in their early 20s. And that can be discovered through investigation. That would invalidate the marriage. There's a lack of physical capacity that could invalidate a marriage. A man could be impotent from the very beginning of a marital relationship, unable to complete the sexual act. He's a person who means well, but marriage is not just about consent of the will, it's about entering into a relationship, a physical relationship of bodily union. And if someone can't complete that bodily union from the very beginning because of some unfortunate medical reason, then that person really is not capable of marriage, and therefore the marriage is declared null and void. So there's a lot of different reasons why a marriage can be discovered to be null and void from the beginning. Someone is an addict an addict, an alcoholic who enters into marriage, an active alcoholic, active addict, is not deemed to have the sufficient freedom to enter into that commitment. So there's a lot of things that courts have discovered that have caused them to declare there's a you know, null and void union at the beginning, and therefore that a person who's apparently married has the right now to seek marriage in the Catholic Church. When a church grants a, a decree of nullity to a couple, it is not in any way an approval of that couple in the way they've handled themselves is not a reward to that couple, it's simply a recognition of a fact. And that is that both parties are free to marry in the Catholic Church, okay? What happens when someone is married and realizes that their marriage was originally null and void because they lack canonical form, because there was some misunderstanding as to what marriage is at the beginning? What do they do when they find out that their marriage, which they hope to be in forever, was not done right? Well, there's a ceremony called convalidation, where a priest gets together with a couple and they fix what was broken. They make sure that there's free informed consent, that there's acknowledgement as to what marriage is, and therefore marriage is validated. 
Sometimes people call this blessing a marriage. You know, people who get married according to the justice of the peace and later have their marriage blessed. Well, the right term is convalidation. There's some pastoral suggestions that I'd like to make here. One of the big problems that we have right now is tremendous lack of knowledge out there as to what marriage is. A tremendous lack of preparation for marriage on the part of many young people. We have preparation that is immediate. You know, we call it approximate preparation for marriage. We often have a course called pre-cana. But what's really needed is more remote preparation. There needs to be teaching in the home of what marriage is. And outside the home, there needs to be more teaching for young people as to what marriage and family is all about. It shouldn't wait for a short three-week course when people are engaged. That's just really not sufficient. With divorced and remarried people, there needs to be pastoral ministry for people in this circumstance. People who cannot be received fully the sacraments because their marriage was not declared null and void, and yet they remarried anyway. We need to really help them understand that they're not rejected by the church and do our best to minister to them. When it comes to uh, husband and wives in their relationship, I think in this age, in this age that's so anti-authoritarian, in an age that's been influenced by the feminist movement, I think there needs to be a re-examination of the whole reality of husband as head of the family. It's something that most people run away from out of fear because it's so politically incorrect to speak about this issue. But I believe that for the good of spouses and for the good of the family unit, we have to re-examine this reality. We have to look back at Genesis and see that there can be leadership without domination. That's the model of Genesis 2. And we can see on every level of the church's life that there has to be partnership and collegiality, but still there is one person who has to have ultimate responsibility for decision-making and someone who has a role of head of the local community, which is the parish, the local church, which is the diocese, and the universal church, which, you know, we have equality between bishops, but at the same time we have the headship of the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. So within the family unit, which is a domestic church, I see the same reality where husband and wife have an intimate partnership in leading the whole family, in making decisions together. But nonetheless, the husband has a unique role, I believe, assigned by God. I think that's clear in the scriptures and in tradition, a role of headship, a role of headship, which is leadership and responsibility, but yet leadership and responsibility of service and not of domination. I don't believe that there's a whole lot of recent guidance in magisterial documents on this. Early magisterial documents do teach this. So I feel like this is an area where doctrine needs to be developed, where theologians and Christians need to talk and pray, and our bishops need to teach with greater clarity about this important reality, the headship of husband and yet equality and partnership of spouses. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.